Hallelujah, what a Savior. You know, as we come to God's Word this morning, we come in this passage in John, and you almost say those words naturally. Hallelujah, what a Savior. He's coming to that point where, honestly, his, his public ministry is finished. At the end of this passage we look at this morning, he will say, I have, uh, that, or the, John will tell us that from that point on, he withdrew himself from the people. Only his disciples are there with him. Only those closest to him uh, are with him. But before we get to that, he goes through some real struggle, some real heaviness of soul in his own life. Now, you may think, why would the Son of God, who is omnipotent and omniscient and knows all things, why would he be, as John will tell us, in, or as Jesus himself tells us, actually, in quoting in, in verse 27 of John chapter 12, now my soul has become troubled. Before I even read this text, I want you to understand a couple of things about that. Jesus is not saying my soul has become fearful. He is not saying that I'm perplexed because I don't understand what's going on in the world around me. He's not saying any of that. He's talking about a heaviness that is coming because of the situation that he's about to face. And, and he, he struggles with that just a little bit. This is sort of a, analogous to the Garden of Gethsemane uh, passage that the Synoptic Gospels tell us about. John doesn't record the Garden of Gethsemane. But he does re- record this heaviness, this struggle, this, this, this passion that's taking place within his own soul, even as we see him coming to the end of his public ministry. I mentioned uh, uh, that song we just sang, the the last verse of, Hallelujah, What a Savior. I mentioned that in my Grace Notes article this week because the fourth verse of that song says, Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high, Hallelujah, What a Savior. Now, Now just to show you how God works sometimes, I had honestly thought about I was going to stand up this morning and the first thing I was going to do is say, let's sing the fourth and the fifth verses of Hallelujah, What a Savior. And I don't have to do that because we sang the fifth verse, the last verse, uh, at the end of the offertory there. And, and it's just amazing. And, and then I looked at the, the order of worship, you know, and the, the way Jeff takes the Scripture and looks at what I'm preaching on and then comes with the songs and, you know, holy, holy, across the lands, blessed be your name, glorious day. All of those songs just relate to Christ being the light of the world and Christ being the... And it all comes together as God puts it together in a glorious and, and beautiful way to get us to thinking clearly about he, what He wants us to see and what He wants us to understand out of His Word this morning. Hear the Word of the Lord as I read from John chapter 12, beginning in verse 27 and reading through verse 36. Now my soul has become troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it. And that's the third time in the scriptures, in the gospels, that we hear a voice from heaven. The two that Brother Todd read about as he read the passage this morning for us to hear. And now this one. Once at his baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Once at his transfiguration, when he said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And now in this 
end of his public ministry, when a voice comes out of heaven and says, I have both glorified your name, my name, and I will glorify it again. So the crowd of people who stood by and heard it were saying that it had thundered. You know, thunder is always associated in the Old Testament with the, with the voice of God. Go up, to Mount, go up to, uh, uh, to Mount Sinai when the law is being given. The people down below saw flashes of lightning and heard thunder, but Moses was hearing God speak the law. In Job, when you have, the, have God speaking, it sounds like thunder, peals of thunder. I mean, that's always associated. So these people standing around, they hear the voice of God, but to them who are unbelieving, it just sounds like thunder. Some of them went on to say, well, others were saying, well, an angel has spoken to him because they did believe that the angel of the Lord would come and speak and all men couldn't understand it. All men didn't get the message, but they knew something unique was going on. And Jesus answered and said, this voice has not come for my sake, but for your sakes. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death that he would, by which he was to die. The crowd then answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And, and how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Isn't it amazing? They misquote him. In this passage, he's not saying anything about the Son of Man. But they know he's made that claim of being the Son of Man, being the Messiah, being the Christ. And so they draw that in, even though he didn't say it in this text. How can you say the Son of Man? If you claim to be the Son of Man, how can you say he'd be lifted up? Why, well, we've heard. We've heard, or who is this Son of Man? We, Jesus said to them, but for a little while, excuse me, the crowd said, we have heard out of the law, that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, he didn't really directly answer their question, for a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. This pivotal point, this critical event in the life and ministry of Jesus can only be understood really in the context of this whole chapter, even even the things that we looked at last week when he talked about a grain of wheat falling into the earth and dying. Talking about himself being buried, dying and being buried, and then raising again, bearing much fruit, many disciples because of his death and because of his resurrection, because of the fruit he would bear, but also pointing to you and me. So, several asked me last Sunday, just a very practical question, when I talked about you know, that, that he who, loses, who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to, etern to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also, and if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Several asked me, well, how do you, 
how does that happen? How do you die to self? How do you, I realize Jesus says you got to lose your life, you got to, and if you try to love your life, you're going to lose it eternally, but if you lose your life and hate your life in this world, then you're going to, you're going to gain eternal life, you're going to be with him forever. But, but how does that practically, you, you told us that's what we're to do, but how does that practically work itself out? That's a great question. Jesus is not saying you kind of muster up some kind of inner strength and you say, I'm going to die, I'm going to kill myself, I'm going to die to self spiritually, and I'm just going to do it. He's not talking about that at all. But what he's talking about is getting your focus changed, getting your attention changed. You see, we live in a world that is self-absorbed. We live in a world that is self-glorified, and we live among a people and sometimes we ourselves are that way. We, we want to glorify self. We want to, we want to build up self. We want to say, oh, I can do it. I'm an American. You know, I can dream big and do whatever I want to do. And so we grit our teeth and we say, I'm just going to die to self. It's, it's not what it's about. Dying to self is really quite simple, at the same time quite difficult. Because what Jesus means when he talks about dying to self is really change your whole focus. Change your whole attention span. Change it off of yourself and off of what you want and off of what is best for you and and off of what you really desire in this life and focus it on Him. Get your focus off of self. Get your focus on Jesus. Let Him be the center of your life. Let Him be the center of your focus. Live unto Him. Desire Him. And His, His Holy Spirit grants you the grace that you die to self because you see Him as He really and gloriously is. I prayed in my prayer just a bit ago that we could ask the question, what is it that I can't live without? If you fill in the blank there, I just can't live without blank. Whatever you put in that blank is what you worship. That's important to understand. You say, well, I just just couldn't live without my job. i got to have this job. This job is the most important thing in my life. Then I would say to you, your job is what you worship. Your job is an idol. Oh, I just can't live without my spouse. If my spouse died, my life would fall apart. If if my spouse left me, my life would just fall apart. Then I would say to you that your spouse has become your idol, your false god, the thing that you worship. Oh, I just can't live without this boyfriend or girlfriend. I I just can't live without this popularity. I just can't live without people uh, noticing me and liking me. Then Anything you put in that blank, I want you to understand, that becomes your idol. That becomes your goal. And and that's the exact opposite of what Jesus says is necessary to understand what eternal life is all about. You've got to follow me. You've got to die to self. You've got to lose your life in this world. You've got to hate your life in this world. You've got to focus on who he is and follow him. When Jesus says that, that's a fairly difficult matter. It's amazing. He says that after the Andrew and Philip have brought these Gentiles to him. Do you notice there that he doesn't say, hello Gentiles, how are you doing? Hello Greeks, glad you're here. Matter of fact, some people even, I had a couple ask me this week, why didn't he, why didn't he talk to the Greeks? I think he did. 
I think Jesus was so moved by the significance of that moment that all these Jews have been around him for so long, and now these Greeks are coming, and they're saying, we must see Jesus. We've heard about him. We know about him. We must see him. And, and immediately he, he zeroes in on the significance of that hour. He's going to talk about that in the passage this morning. But all of a sudden, what has been a very tight regional faith, what has been a very tight regional outreach, is about to explode into the world. And, and I think John just records to us what he says here because that was the most poignant fact the most poignant statement that Jesus made in that passage, in, in that conversation. You know, my, uh, periodically, uh, several times a week, my son will call me from Nashville, and, and we will talk for half an hour or 45 minutes sometimes. And when I go off the phone, there's always one question that's asked by my wife, by Retta. Well, what did he say? And I immediately go into fear mode, and I say, well, he said... Bing, 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 out two or three things. Now, it doesn't take me 45 minutes to tell her what he said in 45 minutes, what our conversation was. I just say, he said he's doing this. He said they had a good, uh, good job. His job went well today. They had this interview. It went well. You know, just tell her the, the real poignant points. I think that's what John's doing here. I mean, John will tell us at the end of this book. Now, those are the things that I've written that you might believe in him. But if I told you everything Jesus said and did, there's not enough books in the world. There's not enough libraries in the world to contain all of that. So he's not telling us everything he said to the Greeks here. He's just saying, here's the poignant fact. Jesus now is saying, my hour has come. My hour is here. For three years or so, I've been with these disciples, and I've been ministering, and I've been teaching, and I've been doing miracles or signs. But man, the time has now come that the main point, the main issue is before me. And that's what he says, starting in verse 27. He says, now my soul has become troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Is that what I'm to pray now? Am I to, am I to be so perplexed by this and fearful of death on the cross, hanging there, lifted up, that I say, Father, please save me from this hour? Now, in the garden, there's a bit of that. He, he, ble he sweated blood drops in the garden, and he was... He was, he was saying, help me, get, if this cup can pass from me, Lord, if there's any other way to redeem my people and, and to save my people, then let it pass from me. I don't want to hang there and bear the sins of the world on my sinless body and in my sinless self. If there's any way past, but Jesus says here, is that what I'm to pray for? Father, save me from this hour? And he immediately answers his own rhetorical question. He says, no, I can't pray that. For it was, it, it was this purpose, but, it, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. I've known it all my life. I've known it all my ministry. I've known it when I was raising the dead Lazarus. I've known it when I was feeding the 5,000. I've known it when I was healing the, the man crippled from, uh, for 30-something years. I've known it from the time I healed a blind man who was born blind. I mean, this is it. All of those were important, and all of those were glorifying the Father's name. All of those were pointing to who he was. All of those were marks of the Messiah. All of those were signs to say he really is who he says he is. But those will not save. Those will not redeem. 
Those will make great stories and, and, and oral histories and, and finally written histories. And there'll be great things to talk about. And they are great things to point to him. But Jesus recognizes that those things will not save anybody. Just believing he raised Lazarus from the dead, if he had not gone to the cross, would not save you. You understand that? It's for this hour that I came. And then he prays his real prayer. Very simple prayer. Father, glorify your name. There's the essence of the ministry of Jesus. There's the, there's the focal point of everything he does, everything he says, and what he's about to do on the cross, what is right before him. He says, Father, glorify your name. You know, that that would be our prayer. Father, glorify your name in my life. As I go to school tomorrow, as I go to work tomorrow, as I go to see people I'm friends with tomorrow, as I fellowship with them, as I, as I carry on relationships with them, Father, those are all good, and, good and, and, and nice, but Lord, Father, as I do all that, glorify your name. Well, the voice comes from heaven. I don't know what the voice of God sounds like, but it must be booming. It must be better than any radio announcer you've ever heard. Even better than Steve Brown's. If you don't know that, I'll tell you later. A voice came from heaven and said, I have both glorified it, and I will glorify it again. God says, listen, I've been glorifying my name in every miracle you've done, every statement you've made, every person you've healed. My name has been being glorified and has been continuously pointing to where you're going. And I'm going to do it again. I'm going to glorify my name as you hang on that cross. I'm going to glorify my name as you rise from the dead. I'm going to glorify my name as you ascend back to the right hand of the Father. Listen, Jesus is troubled in this time, but don't you know in his soul there's got to be just a bit of joy that there's about to be a home going, a homecoming. He's going back to where he really belongs, to be with the Father. So the people hear this voice from heaven. They think it's thunder. They think an angel spoken to him. They're all confused. Maybe even the disciples. I don't know. It didn't say. But Jesus answered and said, This voice has come not for my sake, but for your sakes. Now, it's an interesting statement because they don't understand it. They don't know what the voice said. I don't think Jesus is saying it's not at all for his sake, but I think he's saying it's more for your sake than for my sake. I know God's in control. I know God is speaking. I know God is working. But you hear this voice, even though it sounds like thunder, even though it, you maybe think it's an angel talking to me, it's my Father, and He's saying this that you might understand that something unique, something unlike anything that's ever happened before is about to take place, and you better listen. You better pay attention to what is taking place. Then He says, Four things, basically. Four things that I think indicate how God is going to glorify himself through his son. 
He says, first of all, in verse 31, now judgment is upon this world. Wow. That is a, that is a bold and strong statement. Judgment is now upon the world. The world is about to be judged. How? Through my cross. And, and some are going to be drawn to me. He'll talk about that in a minute. Another way is going to glorify God through his death. But, 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 but there, judgment is going to come. Now, we tend to think of judgment as being the final judgment, don't we? We tend to think of judgment as being that that will take place when Christ comes again, like we sang, when he comes in glorious reign and king, you know, and, and we sing about that, and, and that it will be the final judgment. But I want you to understand judgment is even now that Christ has come to the cross. And, and Scripture says that if you are in Christ, you have been judged already, and you have been justified and declared not guilty. Paul deals with that in Romans 3, 4, and 5 clearly. He says, listen, you have been, if you're in Christ, your judgment has already taken place, and you've been declared not guilty. But the judgment came through the cross. For all those who reject the cross, there is judgment abiding upon their life. There's the wrath of God abiding upon their life even right now. You may not see it. They may not sense it, they may not feel it, they may not even agree with you, they may argue with you about it, but God says that is the absolute, total truth. That in my being lifted up, in my crucifixion, in my sacrifice, judgment has now completely, fully been manifested in the world. We don't like to talk about judgment, do we? We don't like to think about wrath. We talked about a few weeks ago how one denomination declared they can't sing, they can't put in their hymnal in Christ alone because it talks about on the cross the wrath of God was satisfied. Well, that's what Scripture says. Read Romans. Understand that, that God's wrath is, 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 is abiding upon all unrighteousness and all ungodliness right now and when we are placed in Christ by the work of God in our life through his Holy Spirit that wrath is satisfied it's that great New Testament word propitiation it is propitiated it is dealt with it'll never have to be dealt with again so Jesus says judgment has come into the world and the final question is going to be, what do you do with Christ? What have you done with him? Second thing he says is, now the ruler of this world has been cast out. In the Old Testament and the New Testament both, Satan is kind of viewed as the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world, the one who's running rampant, running around like a, a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, you know, wanting to destroy, wanting to kill. And Jesus says, but in what's about to happen, the ruler of this world will be cast out, will be defeated, will be ultimately rendered, if he's a roaring lion, rendered toothless and clawless. You say, oh, I thought that would take place also in the final judgment when he'd be cast in the lake of fire. Oh, that will be a an event not to be unnoticed but you've got to understand when jesus cried on that cross just like the uh, just like philippa 
uh, blisses him. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now exalted, now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah, what a Savior. When he spoke those words, and when he will speak them in a couple of months when we get to it, it is finished. He's talking about Satan has been defeated, cast out, toothless, and clawless. And God is glorified in the judgment of this world. God is glorified in the ruler of this world being cast out. And then thirdly, God is glorified. Jesus says, and I, an emphatic I, no other I will fit this bill. No other person can do it. We, we read that psalm. I, you know, again, Jeff, I think we just came to this accident. No, providentially today. Not accidentally. But you know, I, I love in Psalm 49 where, where the psalmist says, No man can by any means redeem his brother or, or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly and, and he should cease trying forever. That he should live on eternally. That he should not undergo decay. What the psalmist is speaking prophetically about is what Jesus is talking about right now. When the Son of Man is lifted up, it, He will redeem. He will draw men to Himself. Now the word all men there can be confusing. It sounds as though Jesus is a universalist. If I'm lifted up on the cross, I'll draw all men, all women, everywhere, of all you know, exclusive of anybody. It's all inclusive. Everybody will be saved. Well, Jesus has been, is going to be clear again. Only if you believe in the light, and he is the light. Really, the, I think the best commentary on what Jesus is saying here is what John wrote in the book of Revelation when he wrote in Revelation 5, 9, and they sang a new song here in heaven. The, the seraphim, the cherubim, the, the, the angelic beings are singing around the throne of God and, and around the throne of Jesus, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain. And in being slain, you purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. Not every person in every tribe, tongue, people, but men from all across the globe. Jesus purchased with his own blood. Can you imagine that? Until now, it's been focused in Jerusalem, and then these Greeks come, to, and in Israel, and these Greeks come to him, and Jesus says, now is the hour that I've come to, and the gospel is about to be opened up, not just to those listening in Palestine, but those across the earth, even in Somerset, Kentucky, 2,000 some odd years later. I kind of want to be like the old country preacher. Can't I get an amen on that? Or a hallelujah. Or a praise God. You know, I mean, th this, is, this, is, this is deep stuff. And it's simple at the same time. When he comes, our glorious king. Hallelujah. What a savior. When I be lifted up, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to redeem a people for myself. Now, there's one other verse after that one in Revelation, and I, I didn't have it here in my notes, and I, I want to read the one that follows it because it's important. You know, when he purchases with his blood uh, men, and that is men and women from every tribe and tongue and people, and listen to this, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Priesthood of all believers. 
We are priests before God. We are kingdom before God. We are the very people of God. God has called us to this very moment. Didn't just save Jews in Palestine. Didn't just save those who were under the law of Moses. But he saved you and me who are Gentiles living only under the law of sin and death. But out of that foreign land called America, out of that foreign state called Kentucky, out of that foreign city called Somerset, he has redeemed for himself a people bought by his blood. Wow. Judgment. Cast out the ruler of the world. Lifted up from the earth on the cross. By that indicating the kind of death he was to die. And, and the crowd was, was perplexed by that. They were troubled by that. Well, how can that be? We've heard from the law that the Christ is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man it must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? She's been telling them. Jesus has been showing them. Jesus has been doing sign after sign after sign and discourse after discourse after discourse to say, I am he who is from God. I am God incarnate. Who is this Son of Man? Who is this Christ? Who is this Messiah? They just won't see it. So Jesus said to them, I want you to hear the urgency of this. This is important. This is vitally important. So Jesus said to them, for a little while longer, at this point, a matter of hours, a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light so that the darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. God is glorified by judgment. God is glorified by, by casting out the ruler of this world. It is finished. God is glorified by, by seeing Jesus lifted up as a sacrifice and as a substitute in your place and in my place, bearing your sin and my sin on that cross. He is glorified in the final perfect Lamb of God without any blemish, without any sin, who hangs there with no sin of his own and bears our sin. We've said it before and I'll say it again. That was the hell of the cross. That was the agony of the cross, not the nails, not the physical pain. That was bad enough. We couldn't handle that. But that wasn't the real agony of the cross. The real agony of the cross was that Jesus bore God's wrath on my sin and your sin if you're in Christ. Wow. So that you might be able to die to self so that you might be able to say, I want to live to Christ. I want to live to God. I want to make the only thing in my life I can't live without is Jesus Christ, not something or some inferior person. I don't mean to call your spouse inferior, your kids inferior, but to Christ, they're inferior compared to him. There's the fourth way Jesus, God glorifies himself in this work of Christ. That he will raise up sons of light. 
that he will raise up children of light. That he will raise up a people who believe in the light, who follow the light, who trust in Jesus Christ, and by the work of his grace in your life, you have been changed, you have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his glorious light. You have been transferred out of death into life. You have been given life in Christ, just like Lazarus was given life to come out of that grave. That's where God is glorified in your life as you live in Somerset, Kentucky, and beyond as children of light. Reflecting his light, pointing to his light, focusing on his light, focusing on him. Jeff quoted as we sang that gospel song a few minutes ago that we're to come as little children. It doesn't mean we come childishly, because children, when they're childish, are rather selfish, you know? But it means coming with a trust like a little child. Some of you are sitting here holding children in your lap. And others in the cry room and probably out in the foyer holding them and watching the service. And and that little child, that little baby, trusts you totally. They believe you're going to do what's best for them. You feed them. You change their diaper. You burp them. And do all sorts of things for them they cannot do. And they trust you that you're not going to lock them in a closet and go out of town for a week. You better not. They trust you for that. That's what, God, that's what Jesus meant by childlike faith. You trust God totally. You trust Jesus Christ totally. You focus on Him completely. You're not caught up in yourself. You're not worrying about what I want, and, and if I don't get it my way, then I'll, I'll not like that. You know, I'll do, I, I just want what I want is what He wants. The synoptics tell us that when He prayed in the garden, He prayed, Father, not my will, but Your will be done. Do you pray that prayer? That's really the essence of prayer. I mean, Jesus gives us the statements on how to pray in, in the Sermon on the Mount and the model prayer, our Father who art in heaven, worship. You know, the whole, we've talked about that. But that's really the essence of how our prayers ought to be. It's how they ought to end. Because we spend a lot of time, usually in our prayer, telling God what he ought to do. Being his counselor. Saying, Lord, you really, ought to, you really need to do this in my life. You really need to give me this. You really need to do this for me. I mean, that's really how far too many of our prayers go. But our prayer really ought to be, Lord, I want to get in on your will. I don't want to try to change your will to fit my will because my will is inferior. My will will mess things up. Lord, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. God says, I have both glorified it and I will glorify it. When we pray that prayer, we may not hear a booming voice from heaven. We may not hear the thunder roll. We may not hear God speaking by an angel, as they thought. But when we pray that prayer and walk as children of light, change the way we live. 
because his spirit energizes us to die to self and to live unto Christ. I mean, this morning, search my heart, O God, and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful way. See if there be any sin within me. And if there is, cleanse it and lead me in the everlasting way. Let's pray. Father, it is by your grace and it is for your glory that we are here. It is by your grace and for your glory that we are saved and redeemed and purchased. Lord, it is by your grace and for your glory that we can be lights, that we can die to self and hate our life in this world in a spiritual sense and and love you alone and focus on you. It's by your grace and for your glory that all of this is possible. Father, we simply ask you this morning to do it. Do it in our lives. Father, I know there are men and women and young people here this morning who don't know you. They're they're not believers. I'm sure they're, they're here because your spirit has brought them here, even to hear this message. So I'm assuming, Lord, that you're at work in their life. And I, I pray you complete that work, even this morning. Show them your grace in a mighty way that they might believe in Christ they might believe that he is the life, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Savior, and the only Savior. Even as the psalmist said, we can't redeem our brother. Father, work in their life. But work in all of our lives, Lord. Because we are still a work in progress. But as the Apostle Paul said to the Philippian Christians, I am confident of this very thing. That he who began a good work in you will perfect it. It's not overnight. Sometimes it's not real pretty. But you will perfect it in the day of Christ Jesus. Carve us. Mold us. Shape us. Into your will. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.